Okay, as we continue our studies in the book of Revelation, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Rather than expounding a particular portion of the, the text of, in Revelation, we want to return to uh, chapter 11, especially um, in light of the two witnesses uh, that we addressed last week. Now, as I contended last week, and that is the consensus of most Reformed commentators, that the two witnesses are not projecting two individuals that will, um, two specific individuals that will be sent or ministered to the church in any part of the world, but rather it is uh, a symbolic representation of the prophetic function of the church. So before we launch into um, the seventh trumpet, which is itself the content of that, of that vision, is pretty concise, but before we do that, I want to, to return to the very fact, which is the overarching theme or the overarching point of that narrative about the two uh, witnesses, the function, the, the prophetic function of the church. And so we want to unpack that concept a little more and why it's so important. So the Again, what John hears in this narrative about the two witnesses, pretty much what's laid out is a symbolic representation of the prophetic ministry of the church, the, the, the prophetic ministry and function of the church. And so to unpack this, this, um, this, this category or this, this concept, because it plays out and we've already addressed it and it will play out even more so in the chapters that follow. So it's very important for us to get a, a feel what of, uh, of what is meant by this. So when we talk about the prophetic ministry and function of the church, the first thing I wanna do is delineate it or distinguish it from the prophetic function of the office of prophet in national Israel. And there are a number of reasons for that distinction. But primarily, in national Israel, the whole nation was considered a representation of God to the rest of the nations. So even as a geopolitical entity, they were distinct. And I would argue that they are the only true Christian nation throughout human history. And so therefore... The, the prophet, priest, and king, that, uh, which were the three anointed offices in national Israel, they are unique. They were, one, a prototype of the coming Messiah, which is Jesus. The three, um, and, and actually it goes back to Adam because they were, in a sense, the second Adam. National Israel symbolized the second Adam. Uh, and therefore, just as the first Adam had the function of prophet, priest, and king. So in the second Adam, in the prototypical nation of national Israel, they also had the three anointed offices of prophet, priest, and king. Those are covenant functions. But in the coming of Christ, the last Adam, those three offices, as it was in the first Adam, are now rest upon a single individual. So national Israel was always prototypical of a spiritual reality that was yet to come. However, that being the case, 
the role of the prophet was far different for them than it is for us as a, as a church. Because the role of the prophet was to hold the nation accountable to the law of God that they subscribed to. So if the king was out of line, then the prophets would speak what thus says the Lord in the name of the Lord to the king because the king also understood his obligation as God's representative, God's governing representative. Uh, the king, as with the prophet, understood the law of God. That's not the case for the church in the world. So we do have a prophetic function, but it's not in the same way that the prophets function in national Israel. When we talk about the prophetic ministry and function of the church, it can be summarized in this way. Now, first off, the prophetic ministry and function of the church is when is the proclamation of the word with proper with, with the, uh, the proper or excuse me proclamation of the word of God with proper delineation and distinction between law and gospel. So that is the ministry of the word with a proper delineation and distinction between law and gospel. Now this function is performed in the dynamics of the primarily it is it is performed primarily first and foremost in the dynamics of the church gathered now you see in a moment why we make this uh, why we emphasize primarily and first and foremost so in other words when the church gathers when the church as a called out body gathers publicly that is when this duty of the proclaiming and delineation of law and gospel is performed. But also, consequently, the preaching or the ministry of, of law and gospel extends to the dynamics of the church scattered. Now, that's the secondary use of it. Primarily, when we gather, the ministry of law and gospel is what brings us together. It's what defines us. And so it is actually performed. So when is the church being prophetic? It is being prophetic primarily when the church gathers. Consequently, when the church scatters, there is a different dynamic of us living out law and gospel. So let's look at these let's look at these two dimensions or these two uh, dynamics. So we'll begin with the ministry of the word consisting in the proper delineation of between law and gospel when the church gathers. And when I say when the church gathers, it's when the church gathers in study and when the church gathers in worship. And in that instance, the function, the prophetic functioning of the church and the prophetic ministry of the church is the presentation of God's law as the oughtness of human thought, word, and deed. So when we gather, 
whether it's in the in Bible studies, small groups, or when we gather for public worship. The prophetic ministry and function of the church consists in those that God has appointed in opening up the word of God and declaring God's law, what he has revealed in his word, as being the oughtness to shape, inform, and direct all of our thinking, our speaking, and our doing. Now, as such, when we reveal, when we open up God's law, it does expose our guilt. Because as God's law is expounded, what he has intended for the oughtness of human conduct, the more God's law is opened up, the more it exposes our sin. We do not preach God's law as a means of salvation. We preach God's law as presenting the standard for how we ought to think, how we ought to speak, and how we are, ought to interact with, with others. Now, when we speak of, of, of a standard, every human being, individually and corporately, has something that informs them in terms of what is appropriate for us to think, uh, say, or do. Whether it comes from your home, whether it comes from your community, your news sources, uh, things that you read, all of our behavior is shaped by something. And the intent or the, the purpose of, of opening up God's law to the people of God when they gather, and I emphasize that because that means that that stresses the intentionality of our gathering. And it also presupposes a conviction that God's law, that first off, that God is, and that God's law is the proper standard by which we are to measure our behavior. So there are other standards that, that influence why we say and do what we do. But when God's law is opened up, when the people of God are gathered corporately, it not only shows us what God requires, but it also exposes our own failure. That exposure is what brings us to a sense of, of, of conviction, and it's from that that we are able to conform and, and, well, actually repent and conform our actions and words as much as we can in any given situation to what God has required. So God's law is opened up as the standard for all of human conduct. God's law expounded to God's people gathered exposes our guilt. I want to say something here on application because sometimes uh, in preaching and in teaching people are always looking for application. But what I've learned over the years is that if we are faithful in, and especially when it comes to understanding the law when we are faithful to the text and when we are faithful to expounding and explaining, the, when, and especially when it comes to the law, when we expound that, we don't have to try to apply it for people. 
we trust that the Holy Spirit that gives us the same spirit that gives us the ability to recognize God's law and his authority is also bringing conviction. And sometimes he's bringing conviction to people at levels and on issues. There is no way that we could try to conceive and say, well, in a scenario like this. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no place for application, but sometimes our application becomes a law unto itself rather than allowing the Spirit through the ministry of the Word as the law is opened up that people see themselves as woe is me. But the proclamation of God's law not only exposes our guilt, but it is a clear understanding of the law of God that leads us to Christ. Not just unto salvation, but as a part of our ongoing sanctification. So the law of God presents the standard by which we are to live. It exposes our failures to live by that standard, and it drives us to Christ. That's what is, is oftentimes called the threefold use of the law. When I say that the law drives us to Christ, because what we understand with Christ is that he's the law keeper. And it's recognizing him as the law keeper that transitions us to the gospel. Proclamation of law tells us what God has established as the oughtness for human conduct. Showing us that standard shows us how far we are. But we are also pointed to, uh, so as we are left in despair because of our failures, it's then that we understand Christ as law keeper. And the moment we look at Christ as law keeper is when we transition to gospel. So Jesus, and, and one of the reasons that is important is because while we are told, especially in Ephesians, that we are to be imitators of Christ, the righteousness of Christ is not presented to us for our salvation as a model that we are to follow. The righteousness of Christ is presented to us as being ours by faith. And so Christ is not a role model first and foremost. Christ is a law keeper for us first and foremost. So the ministry of the law necessarily, and a proper delineation of the law, necessarily leads us to the only law keeper. And when we transition, when we start looking to Christ as law keeper, we transition into the gospel. And from that transition into the gospel, we are, what is uh, what takes place by the dynamics of the spirit through the ministry of the word, we are nurtured in Christ and consoled and what is created through the ministry of the gospel is a desire a desire to conform our thoughts our words and our deeds to God's holy and righteous law and we do this in love for the Savior and gratitude for salvation so again, if we put it all together, what takes place 
when the church gathers in study and in ministry or public worship, the ministry of the word consists in delineation between law and gospel, the law being presented as the standard by which we are to conform our thoughts, words, and deeds. The, the better grasp, even when we think we have improved, even when we have done better than we did yesterday or the year before, the more we understand the law, the more we see the flaws in our failure and in, in our in, in our inability to keep it. We see that even our righteousness, as the Lord says in Isaiah, is as filthy rags. As we as our sins are exposed, we are therefore left in the presence of God with nothing to boast in. And it's then that Christ is presented as our law keeper. And as he is presented as law keeper, what we see in him is what God has required of us and the certainty that he has borne the full weight of condemnation for our failure. Once we see that his righteousness is ours, and that has to be affirmed to us over and over again because we so soon and so easily forget. Once we are renewed in the fact that his righteousness is ours, what is also renewed to us as we wallow in our guilt is that all of his wounds is the sufficient full payment for our failure so that we are affirmed once again that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll say, but you don't know what I did and here's how I feel bad. Yes, yes, and we, we do feel bad once we are awakened to the gravity of our guilt. But his grace is greater than all of our sins. And when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he didn't just mean his earthly ministry is finished, but the debt that was against us is completely canceled. And so therefore, when we, when that is reinforced to us, that yes, he is our law keeper, and yes, he is our sin bearer, then what the Spirit does is he comforts and consoles us in that knowledge. And he creates in us, even recreates, a desire to live moment by moment to the glory of God. When Jesus caught the woman, in, uh, when, when Jesus confronted the woman that was caught in adultery, and he tells her, now go and sin no more. He meant it. But that doesn't mean she didn't sin anymore. And you know what happens when she comes back to him, having sinned again, even if it's a different sin and a different nature, she hears because if her faith is in Christ, what she hears the next time that she comes is the same thing she heard when he released her and told her to go and sin no more.
So therefore, having been nurtured in the content of the gospel, those, when we gather, we are reminded that, yes, we are the children of God, and God nurtures within us not only a desire to conform our thoughts and our words and our deeds to his holy and righteous law, but he nurtures within us gratitude for what the triune God has given us in the gospel. Now, that's when we gather. Now, as a consequence of the church gathering, as a consequence, when the church scatters, we should, we will, I should say, we will or we should engage all of our horizontal relationships and all of our interactions in the light of the law and the gospel that we have received when we gather. In other words, when the church scatters, when we, one preacher put, uh, refers to the afterglow of the benediction, once we leave and we scatter into our homes and our communities, everything that we have received, everything that we have heard about the holiness and the righteousness and the, the goodness of God's holy law. Everything that we've heard about the comforts of the gospel should inform all of our interactions and all of our horizontal experiences and relationships. So when we go home, we should, and we're dealing with difficulties or difficult people in our homes, we should be equipped in that situation in the truth of God's law and the comforts of his gospel. It is an indictment when Christians spend all of their time, so much time at church, and they show so much love sometimes at church towards one another, and then go home to situations where we act like we don't even know God's law, so it's anything that goes, so our, we, we, we feel free to speak in, in a manner that does not honor and glorify God? Because now we're at home, we're in the living room, and we're not in the sanctuary. And the point is, our engagement in the sanctuary ought to inform our engagements in the living room, in our conversation. When the scriptures speak of us, of our, of our words being seasoned with grace, where do you think we get that grace from? It's, this, it's, it's being reminded of what God, in the sanctuary of God, gives us, of what God gives us in Christ. And what we therefore have received when we gather should be on display when we scatter. It doesn't mean that the situation will change, but it does mean that you are equipped to deal with it. Whether it's and how you speak to, to unsaved family members or problems in your home and in your situation. Again, it doesn't mean that you're going to always do the right thing, but it should, it should inform you 
it should equip you. It should prepare you. What you would perceive, understanding the standard of God's law and not your own feelings, not your own track record, not what your friend said, but how do I address this situation in light of what God has required of me in my speech, in my engagement? And not only in the home, and, and listen, we, we've seen this way too often that family members are alienated from uh, church-going family members because the unbelieving family member, which doesn't go to church, have not received that love from people who are saturated in love when they gather. So when we gather, we are equipped to deal with circumstances when we scatter. It, like it, and I want to emphasize this because some would present our gathering as a place to receive stuff that will change our external circumstances. And it, it may or may not. But the, the point is when we gather and we are under the ministry of the word and it's God's law that is reinforced as the standard by which we are to conduct ourselves whether the circumstance changes or not, you should. As your failures in an area have been exposed by the law, and then you have been picked up and buttressed by the gospel, then you are the one that should show more patience, more love, more grace. You are the one that should not be so quick to follow the thought patterns and the actions of the world because you have been reminded that it's not the thought patterns of the world that should govern your speech and your thought patterns and your actions, but it's the standard of God's word. So it should be manifest in our actions, in our homes and in our communities and in all of our engagements, even in the workplace and the way that the, the light of the law and gospel manifests itself in our horizontal experiences is seen in our love of neighbor. And that one is so important, especially in this moment. We live in a very contentious moment. It's not necessarily new, but the divisions and the animosity towards fellow image bearers is manifest in different ways because we have different ways of showing it. Things that we say, things that we do, it's, it's, it's all available to us and people are bolder now even, uh, especially through social media, they feel free and emboldened to say things and to, to act in, in ways that follow the thought patterns of the world. So those of us who have gathered under the ministry of the word publicly, whether it's in teaching or in worship, and God's law has been established as the standard and the oughtness for human conduct and human thought and words and actions, and we have been nurtured and put back together by the love that's contained in the gospel, then when we scatter, then we demonstrate, we walk in that light by showing the proper love for neighbor. And we show that through acts of mercy, 
patience, service, and evangelism. We bring it into our homes in that we bring our children up in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord. And children who are underage, then we, we expose them to the things, to the covenant community. We teach them the faith. We pass on what we believe. And for our neighbors, on our jobs, what does it mean to, to demonstrate love for God on the job? Doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Respecting those who have rightful rule and authority over us. Not stealing. Being honest with our use of time. Respecting the job or the job place. That's how we demonstrate love. It's not by having lunchtime Bible studies. It's not by leaving traps on your co-workers' desks. It's by being, it's, it's by showing love and dignity to your co-worker who is either of another religion altogether or a rank unbeliever. It's by not gossiping. It's, not, it's by not being insubordinate. Those are the ways in which we demonstrate or that are, I back up, those are the ways in which we walk in the light of the gospel or the law and the gospel that we have we have encountered when we gather. And it's through this, it's through our, it's, it's through this ministry of the word by which we are able to expand the kingdom. In other words, our, our mercy, our acts of mercy, our um, missions, and our compassion towards our neighbors are not necessarily acts of evangelism but they can open the door for evangelism what we mean by evangelism is an intentional declaration of the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus Christ the context for evangelism is to expose individuals as being sinners under the just condemnation of a holy God and therefore showing Christ as the only solution for that so I think there are steps that lead us to opportunities to share the gospel and to be intentional in sharing the gospel. But and, and, and one other area I should say that when we scatter, not only are we able to, or not only should we demonstrate love towards our neighbor uh, and demonstrate acts of mercy towards neighbor and, and towards family and acts of kindness and service. But I think one other result, one other consequence of us being, of us gathering under healthy ministry of the word is that when we scatter, we should be able to give an answer. We should be able to defend the faith that we claim. Not always, you know, just looking to looking for an argument but simply as Peter says with meekness being able to give an answer for the hope that is with within us there are two areas that sometimes get confused and that's apologetics which, which is a defense of the faith and evangelism which is sharing the gospel apologetics is simply when someone asks you well why do you believe in the resurrection? You know, people don't 
ordinarily get up from the grave. So you can explain what you, what you believe about the resurrection and why you believe it. That's not evangelism. That's apologetics. That's you defending what you believe. The end result of apologetics is hopefully you, you've proven your point. People may accept it and they may say, oh, you know what? I never thought about that. It doesn't mean, even if, they, even if you win the argument, even if you prove the point, it doesn't mean that they believe. The end result of evangelism, when you share the gospel, the end result that you're looking for is that they would receive it unto salvation. They may or may not. But the end result of apologetics is the winning of an argument. The end result, if the Lord says the same, of evangelism is salvation. There's a difference. You can win the argument, and the person may agree with you on that point, but that doesn't mean that they are Christian or that they have embraced the gospel. But in any event, when we scatter, we should be productive citizens engaging in those issues that we are concerned about that are in the spirit of God's law, also uh, understanding that God's law sets the parameters of how far we are to engage and what we ought and ought not to do. Um, as we gather, we should be equipped to become better husbands and wives, better parents towards our children, better siblings for our brothers and sisters, better neighbors. All of this should be the result of when we gather because those are the areas that we go when we scatter. We should be equipped by our gathering to give an answer for the, the hope that is within us. Now, hold in mind, when we do these things, and this is what brings us back to especially the ministry of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. When we do these things, when we expand the kingdom through the ministry of the word, our ministry of the word, when we gather or when we scatter, will either be resisted, rejected, or received. When it's received, that's the expanding of the kingdom. So those, as in the case of the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was an enemy of the church. The Lord converted him. The kingdom is expanded. So that, so it may be received, but the ministry of the word, the functioning of the people of God in their homes, in their communities, there could, it, it may be met with rebellion and resistance if not just outright rejected. And it's that area, those areas of rejection and resistance that leads to various forms of persecution. All persecution is not the same. The nature and the reasons for persecutions may vary. But ultimately, it is satanically influenced. It's a satanic influence and a continued rebellion against God. I need to make this point because of what we'll see in upcoming chapters, especially in chapter 12, but also in light of what we saw 
with uh, when when the beast from the bottomless pit is released and false doctrine goes out. And the resistance to this is a resistance or the rejection of the gospel message. The nature and the reasons for Christian persecution will vary. In some parts of the world where there are other religions, I have experience in uh, with, with Rafiki Foundation where we've ministered in 10 different African countries. And in some places, um, for instance, a place like, um, like Nigeria, where the population is almost evenly split, 50% Christian and 50% Muslim, and I would probably say 48% on both sides, and that leaves, uh, that leaves room for um, others. But um, it's almost split down the middle. The dominant religious forces in that country is either Christian or Muslim. And when the Muslims are in power, there has been overt, violent persecution against Christians. And it's for no other reason than their faith. So that's one form of persecution. There are other forms of persecution that will manifest itself. Sometimes it's not, it's not even as a political power structure. It could be community alienation. It could be any number of ways in which resistance to the word that you share or that you live in light of, because it's not always about the message that you proclaim overtly. Sometimes it's because you refuse to bow a knee to the bales of the generation. And either way, the point is that when we scatter into the world, having been brought under the ministry of the word of God, delineating between law and gospel, and now we try to live in that light, there will be some who will receive the message and, re and be received into the kingdom, while others will resist it and rebel against it, and it will be the source of various forms of persecution and, and attack, ultimately emanating from Satan and ultimately, this resistance that is Satan influenced is against God. It's, it's, it's a part of his continued rebellion against God, against the Lamb of God, and against the people of God. And this results, as we saw in chapter 11, it results sometimes in martyrdom. Christians losing their lives specifically because of their ministry to the word. Now this rebellion will continue until the final judgment. So there is no season where there, in some part of the world where there is not resistance against the word of God. And what John has seen thus far are the various ways in which this resistance and this rebellion plays out. In chapter 11, verse 8 in particular, I want to read that uh, because he says, um, yeah, in verse, well, I'll read 7 and 8 together. Beginning in verse 7, it says, and when they have finished their testimony, speaking of the two witnesses, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit 
will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead body will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Gomorrah where their Lord was crucified. And specifically the emphasis on this degree of rebellion and it says it will take place in, in, in a sense or the, the, what they will suffer in this world is the same thing, the same sort of persecution that was experienced by Christ. In other words, and that's, that's the connection. What he's saying, and in, in a way, in what, he's being, what he's hearing, is that the rejection or the response, and especially when that, when that message of, of the witnesses is rejected, they can expect the same thing that Christ experienced. Now this kind of goes to something that we see in uh, Revelation, excuse me, in Romans, Romans chapter eight, and we'll read verses sixteen and seventeen. Romans chapter eight, verses sixteen and seventeen, because the ministry, the continuing ministry of the word, is the continuing ministry of Christ in the world. So in verse uh, in, in Romans chapter eight, and looking at verses. Um, 16 and 17 it says um, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him um, and then Paul goes on to say that I don't consider the sufferings of this present time as being worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So in verses, uh, in verse, verses 7 and 8, what John is hearing is that the fate of those who have been faithful, witnesses of the word of God, both gathered and scattered is that the fate of it is some of them, not all, will experience persecution. Now the interesting thing is that we are told that once they, the witnesses are killed, their bodies are left, and then we are told in verse 11, for three and a half day period, in verse 11, let's pick up, let's pick up there, in verse 11, it says, um, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. So why three and a half days? Okay, why three and a half days? Now, there is, and most, uh, I think, William Hendrickson and his More Than Conquerors, he would be of this mind, that the three and a half days is a bridge in the same way that they suffer in the likeness of Christ, they will also share in his resurrection. Now granted, the resurrection of Christ meant that he was in the grave for three days. His time period was three days. For whatever reason, I don't know why the half, but here it refers to the witnesses being given breath after three and a half days so there is probably a correlation between the continuing ministry 
of the church, even though some martyrs have died. So it doesn't mean that these people, all martyrs, will be returned to the earth and, and experience the same resurrection that Christ did. But what it does mean is that in spite of the loss of life from within the context of the covenant community, the ministry of Christ continues because not only do we share in the likeness of his death, Romans 6, but we also share in the likeness of his resurrection. And it's in the power of his resurrection that we stand. So the, the continuing ministry and the resilience of, of the people of God, the fact that he always maintains a, a remnant that even in the midst of, of, of unsound doctrine, even in the midst of persecution, God continues to empower his people to be faithful witnesses in this world. So just as we have shared in the likeness of his crucifixion for the cause of the ministry of the word, we also share in the power of his resurrection so that the grave could not contain him and opposition cannot silence the voice of his church. Now, that's what I want to deal with. I mean, that's all I wanted to open up um, so that we can, you know, as we segue into the next portion, which is the seventh trumpet, because this covers everything that we've seen in the seals and, and even in the trumpets thus far, those things that, and, and especially some of the things that we're going to see later. What I want you to understand, the most important thing for the people of God in the span of time, from the ascension of Christ until his return, is one, the security of those who are in him. We are, we are secured. We are measured. And secondly, the vitality, the absolute necessity for a regular, healthy ministry of the word of God, his law, his gospel, that is vital. We cannot over, overstate the importance of sound, solid doctrine, what God has said on these things for our salvation as well as for our sanctification so that we are conformed, as Paul says in Romans, not to the patterns of this world, but our minds are being renewed as we are being transformed by the word of God. I'm going to go ahead and close there, and next in our next session we'll pick up on the seventh trumpet, which is verses 15 through 19, in Revelation chapter 11. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you once again for your word. There are so many questions that we have as we encounter and, and deal with so many things in this world, but everything that is necessary for life and godliness, you have revealed it to us and you are continuing to open our minds to the riches of your grace as they are found in Christ. We pray that, if nothing else, as we study your word together, we are reminded of how important it is for us to see our security, not in the things that are seen,
but in the things that are unseen. That our hope and our faith is continuously pointed to the person and finished work of Christ. For the, and and what, he, what you've given us in him is sufficient until he returns. We pray that we are faithful in living intentionally in light of your holy law and in light of your forgiveness in Christ. Thank you for our church family locally, and we thank you and pray for the church universal. Continue to strengthen us for your service so that we would be intentional in living for your glory. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.